Whenever we sing these great hymns of the faith, I'm always struck once again with the contrast between the songs of the saints versus the songs of the world. What a sad reality that is that they cannot join with us in singing the songs of redemption. And yet by God's grace, the gospel is available to them, and that should be certainly the passion of our heart to see men and women and boys and girls come to a saving knowledge of Christ. This morning, I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn once again to Matthew chapter 10. We have stepped away from our verse-by-verse study of the gospel of Matthew for several weeks. I've been out of town and Then I've been back, we've had Easter, and now I would like to go back to this particular text and once again immerse immerse ourselves in these glorious truths. This morning we are going to be looking at at least two of the men that Jesus shaped, two of the apostles. And before we look at the text, I would like to just say it's just a joy as your pastor, to watch the Lord shape so many of you. I've been here long enough. Uh, Now it'll be, um, actually, I will have been the pastor of this church, I believe, nine years in August. It's kind of hard to believe. But I've been here long enough to see God do some radical things in a number of your lives. Certainly, he's done a lot in my life as well. And I might also confess that it's sad to see that For whatever reason, some of you just seem to never get it. You just never seem to grow. But this morning we are going to see some of the men that Jesus shaped. And you are going to find some wonderful parallels, I believe, in your life, especially over the next few weeks as we look at the lives of these men. Before we actually look at the text May I remind you that in Matthew chapter 9, and again, since we've been away from this for several weeks, I want to review for you six of the key principles of ministry that we have gleaned thus far in the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, because as you're going to see, we will be moving away from Jesus's public ministry more into his private ministry. Remember now the context here. Jesus has just expressed his compassion for the lost condition of the multitudes that were dogging him at the end of uh, chapter 9 of Matthew. He tells us that they were distressed and they were downcast. They were sheep without a shepherd. We studied that that means that they had literally been ripped open and oppressed by the bondage of legalism. They had been deceived by the self-serving deceptions of their false shepherds. They were like mortally wounded men that were lying face down in the dirt and bleeding to death. They were overwhelmed with their own guilt and their frustration of their external religiosity. They were unable to save themselves, yet they were desperately trying to do so by keeping the law And seeing all of this, we see the first principle of Jesus' ministry that should also be ours, and that is the importance of compassion. That has to be the motive for our ministry, a compassion to rescue people from divine judgment and to help people see that 
They need to be reconciled to a holy God and flee from the wrath to come. We learned that Jesus recognized their desperate state and he knew their hard hearts. Some of them had the hard hearts of unbelief and he knew that they needed to repent and to experience his grace. And so at the end of chapter nine, the Lord reflects upon the harvest, the, the harvest of eternal judgment, as we learned. And it caused his body to literally reel with pity. To be racked with emotion because he knows what awaits those who reject him. So he tells his disciples, those learners that were following him, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. And this leads us to the second principle that we learned, and that is that God answers that very prayer and he chooses those who will lead his body, the church. Because now in chapter 10, we see that the Lord of the harvest, of the harvest of eternal judgment, answers that very prayer. And he summons his 12 disciples in verse one. Summon means to commission. He commissions 12 men to be his apostles. Luke chapter six and verse 13 tells us that it uses the term apostles. It means those who are sent. And so these 12 now will become the official representatives that are commissioned, that are sent forth to accomplish the goal of advancing the kingdom of Christ. They had first been called to saving faith. All of them believed except Judas Iscariot. And all of these men had been following him as mathetes or as disciples, meaning learners. There were many, many thousands of people that followed him in that way. However, most of them were not genuine believers. But now they were being called to an official internship. They were going to now literally live with and be tutored by the Lord Jesus Christ. What an incredible thought. For the next three years, they would be at his side to learn by instruction and by example. It's amazing to think that they were literally mentored by the incarnate God. And then thirdly, we learned that leaders must leaders require much prayer. We saw that the Lord was always committed to doing his father's will. So Jesus now chooses 12 men. And, but he only does that after a long season of prayer. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 12, we read that it and it was at this time that he, referring to Jesus, went off to the mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And then later on in verse 13, it says that he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them out of many, by the way, chose 12 of them whom he also named apostles. Now, the issue here is not so much which ones to choose, because certainly as the sovereign God of the universe, he knew, knew who they would be. But I believe the real issue here is that he prayed for the men that were being chosen. He prayed for them knowing what they needed. By the way, as a footnote, it's interesting. It says in that passage in Luke that he spent the whole night. The Greek term, and I know you'll not remember this, that's okay, but I find it fascinating. It is dianuk tereu. And what it literally means is to endure a task throughout the night. Now, in English, that's how we would have to say it, to endure a task throughout the night. But in Greek, it is one word. And it's interesting that the night was basically 12 hours. And so you might surmise from that 
that he spent one hour praying for every man that would be his 12 apostles, praying for their spiritual growth and development and for Judas praying for his salvation. We don't know the inner Trinitarian communication that occurred on that mountain, but we know that certainly as the Lord Jesus Christ, he was mediating on their behalf as their divine advocate. So here we see the marvelous blending of his humanity and his deity. So leaders require much prayer. Fourthly, we learn that true ministry will always seem counterintuitive. Remember, the divine strategy for ministry, as you look at it biblically, makes no sense whatsoever from a human perspective. It's counterintuitive to human thought, certainly at odds with the modern church growth movement as we see it in contemporary evangelicalism today. May I remind you, as you just think of the plan of redemption that was decreed and set into motion before anything was even created We know that God decided that he was going to send his son as the incarnate Christ and that he would come as a baby and that he would be born in obscurity and that he would let him be a part of the most hated people on the planet, the Jews, and he would be a part of of those that were living in blatant apostasy and that he would have him live a life of, of obscurity, Make him live a life where he had virtually no earthly possessions and to have a ministry of just three years where he constantly told people things that they didn't want to hear. And then going on beyond that, he would wander around merely in about a 60 mile circle. That was the extent of his ministry. And he would attack all of the influential religious elite. He would be exposing their hypocrisy. He would never try and try to gain their their support. He would spend Most all of his time with the poor, the uneducated, the outcast, the disenfranchised, the social misfits. It's counterintuitive. He would never surround himself with celebrities that could somehow open the doors to make his kingdom really explode. But instead he chose uneducated, untrained, and in some cases unwanted social misfits as his representatives. And then he would preach a message That was so utterly offensive and ridiculous that it would eventually cause his own countrymen to cry for his blood. And when he would preach, he wouldn't have 45 minutes to an hour of worship music that would alter their state of consciousness and get everybody in some warm, fuzzy, sentimental mood. Or he wouldn't have other props or whatever uh, and have celebrities to front him. But he would get up and he would merely preach repentance. And then ultimately he would die an ignominious and excruciating death on a Roman cross condemned for crimes that he never committed. That's ministry. It's counterintuitive. Yet the kingdom of God advanced. It continues to advance. And as we look at it, we know that the only reason is it, it, it advances is because God is at work and he gets all the glory. So we've learned that as in our study thus far, that compassion must motivate our ministry. God chooses his leaders. Leaders require much prayer and genuine gospel ministry will always be counterintuitive to the world's way of thinking. And then fifthly, we learn that God uses ordinary people to accomplish his purposes. And given the enormity of the problem of all of the religious hypocrisy 
of all of the wickedness of that day and even this day, you would think that the father would have decided to commission not 12, but 12,000 laborers, apostles. But no, he chose 12. And not only did he choose 12 men, they were ordinary men. As I say, they were uneducated, untrained, common men. And as we will see, they were hard headed. They were un, un, uh, unloving in many ways. They were impetuous. They lacked spiritual understanding. There are many New Testament examples where we see that they lacked humility, they, they, where they struggled with fear. They lacked faith. They were immature, unreliable. Folks, these were the most unlikely candidates to be divine representatives that you could possibly imagine. The only unique thing about them was their lack of qualifications. But this was the father's sovereign choice. And again, it's just the kind of folks that God loves to radically transform and conform into his glorious image. Men who had left their fishing careers, one his despised position as a tax gatherer and others pursuits that men left to simply follow Jesus as he walked from village to village, from town to town, listening to what he had to say, learning from his example. And now for reasons God only knows, they became the sovereignly ordained ministers, the sovereignly ordained emissaries to advance his kingdom. Twelve ordinary men, not the rulers, not the rabbis, not the social and the political elite or even the religious elite, not celebrities, just ordinary men. Reminded of what the Apostle Paul tells us, not many mighty, not many noble that we are just clay pots so that the glory of the gospel of Christ will be what people focus upon. So when the kingdom advances, God gets the glory. And then the sixth point that we learned, again, by way of review, is that depth produces breadth. To say it differently, we begin to see the concept of the infinite mind of God at work here that Concentration produces multiplication. In other words, we see that as the Lord Jesus invests himself deeply in a few, rather than superficially with thousands, as he invests himself deeply with a few, multiplication begins to occur. Here we see again the transition from the Lord's public to his private ministry, at least temporarily. And he's going to spend his time with 12 apostles and particularly just three of them, Peter, James and John, as we will see. You know, it's a fascinating ministry principle, isn't it? That depth produces breadth, that concentration produces multiplication. And I would hasten to add, though, perhaps not in my lifetime or yours. This is certainly the philosophy of ministry that we embrace here at Calvary Bible Church. And I, as I said before, my mentor and friend, John MacArthur, taught me and many others like me a number of years ago this very principle that we are to be driven by the depth of our study and the depth of our understanding of the Word of God and the depth of our people. And let God worry about the breadth of our ministry, that we should be driven by excellence, not by success. That we should be driven by quality, not by quantity. 
And yet certainly the marketing gurus of our modern day church growth movement places the emphasis on just the opposite. But folks, it's not activities in a church. It's not programs. It's not advertising that is going to ultimately produce the glory of God in the lives of people. Now, certainly those things can bring in lots of numbers, but it is going to be the depth and the richness of the understanding of the word of God in the lives of the people. And so we have to pour our life into the people. We are to preach the word, to be intense with it, to be precise with it. And certainly there's always going to be a few people in a church, as we have here, that are hungry to grow. And as I reminded you several weeks ago, those who have had the greatest impact for the kingdom in the history of the world were those who went deep, not wide. Folks, again, please remember that it's easy to draw a crowd. It's a very different thing to grow a church. And so today we're going to get to know the men that Jesus shaped a bit better. Again, the very ordinary men with an extraordinary calling. Men in whom Jesus poured his life and through whom the world continues to be changed, proving the principle that concentration produces multiplication. Now, folks, as we examine these men, you're going to find many parallels in their lives and their personalities with each of us. You're going to begin to see that, boy, you know what? I share the temperament of Peter or of Andrew or of James and John and so on. You're going to begin to see certain character flaws in their lives. And guess what? It will expose some of the same in yours. In fact, you will begin to see some of their habitual sins that become evident in their personalities. You'll begin to see the way they react and you're going to be startled. With how similar how similar those things might be to you, you're going to think, my goodness, he's been reading my mail. Somebody's had a video in my house. But I want you to remember this. While on the one hand, it's, it's, it's extremely important that you examine your own heart. Please know that you're all going to be just like me. You're going to be hopelessly biased in your own favor. You're going to tend to justify and excuse the things that you hear. And so I want you to be aware of that. But I also want you to notice the things that these men had to learn in order to change. And then for you to decisively commit yourself to do the same. And then, folks, watch what the master will do in your life as he shapes you into a vessel fit for his service. Well, the first person that we see here is going to be Peter. But I want to give you the flow of this whole text. Just looking at the first 15 verses because I want to get you, make sure that you have a concept of really what's going on here now as Jesus summons the twelve. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 10. And having summoned his twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James the son of Zebedee, and John his brother. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, saying, 
Do not go in the way of the Gentiles and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you received, freely you give. Do not acquire gold or silver or copper for your money belts or a bag for your journey or even two tunics or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his support. And into whatever city or village you enter, inquire who is worthy in it and abide there until you go away. And as you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, let your greeting of peace come up, come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your greeting of peace return to you. And whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake off the dust of your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable, tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. So. Let's look at the first man that Jesus has on the list. In verse two, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter. Simon was a native of Bethsaida there on the northern end of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, most of our Lord's ministry took place there. Bethsaida, Chorazin and Capernaum, those three cities he later on moved to Capernaum. He was a fisherman along with his father, whose name was John or Jonas. And he had a brother named Andrew. We also know that Peter was married. And he was even married when Jesus called him. In fact, we can read Paul's comments in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 5, which indicate that Peter's wife even traveled around with him. Word of God tells us that he was the first protos in the original language, and it indicates foremost in rank. Foremost in rank. This wasn't an alphabetical order. This was a foremost order. Now, it's important for you to understand that while all of the apostles were equal in position, they all had the same commission. They all had the same authority. They all had... Um, the same power, except obviously the issues with Judas, which we will discuss later, uh, not today, but at another time. They all had um, the promise that they would reign in the millennial kingdom and judge the 12 tribes of Israel equally. Matthew 19:28. But Peter was the foremost in rank. He was the leader. You know, no group, no church, no organization, no marriage, no what company, no government, no board of directors. Nothing can operate unless it has a leader and even elders, for example, uh, in, in the church, in our church. There's always to be a plurality of elders, but uh, there's always going to be one leader, one dominant voice. And in that case, it would be the pastor. And as you have all heard in our Tennessee vernacular, anything that has more than two heads is a freak. And so you have to have a leader. And his very name gives us insight into his character. His common name that was given to him by his parents was Simon Barjona, which basically means Simon, son of Jonah. But in Matthew 16, 18, you may remember when uh, when Simon answered correctly about 
his identification of Jesus as the Christ, the son of the living God. It was at that point that Jesus changed his name from Simon to Peter or Cephas in Aramaic. That's when he said, and I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, which was the truth of his confession about who Christ was, upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, it's interesting. Peter is a word that means rock or stone. So from the beginning, the Lord clearly made him the leader, this rock that would lead the apostles. He was to be the spokesman of the twelve. And even though the Lord saw his flaws, especially his instability and cowardice, he still chose him as the foremost, as the leader, and even gave him a different name. Perhaps this is why, by the way, because he's because the Lord did see his cowardice and his instability. Maybe this is why he gave him that name, one that would give him confidence to become something solid and strong and unwavering. I was reading a a book that is a very excellent book on this on this very topic. uh, Twelve Ordinary Men by John MacArthur. I would encourage you to get that. But I was reading about uh, a very shy and uh, timid taciturn type of man who was a minor league pitcher. But he had an extraordinarily accurate and powerful arm. And there was this guy that we've all seen before, a guy by the name of Tommy Lasorda, the former manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers, who took notice of this kind of skinny, timid fella. And he was really impressed with him, but he knew that somehow this man's character, his demeanor, his personality needed to have an overhaul if he was ever going to make it in the big leagues. And so he decided to give him a new nickname, a name that would help this man live up to his potential, a name that would be the opposite of his personality. And the name that he gave Oral Hershiser was Bulldog. That's funny. And he became exactly that. He became a bulldog, one who was absolutely one of the most tenacious pitchers to ever take the mound of the major leagues. Well, perhaps this is what Jesus had in mind with Peter, who, although he was brash and he was brazen down deep, he was a coward. And the Lord knew that. And the Lord also knew that in his grace, he would eventually change him. Well, it's amazing to read the various scenarios involving Peter that are found in the New Testament. There are so many of them. I'm just going to give you kind of an overview of what we would glean if we were to go through all of them. But he would be a man who you would think would be the last person anyone would pick to be a leader. He was, as we study the scripture, overly self-confident in his own abilities. He was at times unloving. He was impetuous. He was proud, domineering, ignorant to the point of being dense, kind of a duh. I mean, many of his questions like, you know, as the kids would say, duh, you know, Peter, good grief. Surely, you know, better than that. And he was cowardly. He was even unstable. You know, he was the only apostle the Lord rebuked by calling him Satan. That's pretty strong. I like to put it this way. He was a ready fire aim kind of guy. 
He was the type of guy that always had his mind trying to catch up with his mouth. In fact, I've heard it said that he had a foot-shaped mouth. And we all know what that means. We can all identify with that. And don't you know that the other disciples were probably dumbfounded when the Lord changed his name to Peter the Rock? You know, they might have thought, oh, Peter the Rock, you know. How about, how about oh, Simon um, the, the, the thorn bush? Because he's always blowing in the wind and he always stabs people with his thorny personality or something like that. Or, or call him hothead or loose cannon or something other than stone. But it's interesting that no other apostle was reproved as often and as sternly as Peter. In fact, what's interesting, if you study the Gospels, you will see that whenever the Lord rebuked Peter, the Lord called him Simon, not Peter. And, in fact, in John's Gospel, John always calls him Simon Peter. I shouldn't say always. I may be wrong there. I know 17 times I counted that that he does that. Perhaps this was to contrast the old character of his dear friend with the new. We don't know. But folks, here's what I want you to to hear. Over time, by God's grace, Peter's exaggerated self-confidence that would cause him to say to the Lord, I will never fall away from you, Lord, was turned to a humble dependence. Peter's vacillating love and cowardice that would cause him to deny his Savior was eventually transformed into a steadfast love and a boldness that would eventually take him to his own cross. In fact, his impetuosity that would cause him to grab a sword and take a swing at one of the soldiers there in the garden. It's a good thing he was a fisherman and not a swordsman because he missed. I'm sure the guy ducked. He was trying to take his head off and only got his ear. But that impetuosity was gradually tempered into a Christ-like restraint. A meekness that harnessed his zeal with self-control. And as we look at his life, we see that his domineering chutzpah that would cause him to even at times reprove the Lord was gradually melted into a tender and, and humble submission to the Master who washed his feet. And we see that he, the Lord transformed his brash, loud mouth and to a wise and fearless preacher of the gospel of Christ. And the Lord took his ignorance about spiritual things and replaced them with the marvelous revelations that was given to him from the incarnate Christ. But it's important for you to understand this, folks, that the Lord did not change Peter without Peter's own contribution to the change. You see, the process of sanctification requires our active involvement to be obedient to the will of God. We can't just be passive bystanders. We have to participate with this. As we faithfully obey, God faithfully blesses. Think of this. It's time for people to plant their gardens, right? We see everybody out there with their rotor tillers and getting their gardens planted. I'm not a gardener. Maybe you've already done this. Uh, I always am the recipient of your hard work, but uh, but anyway, you get the idea and you know what you have to do as a gardener. You've got to prepare the soil. You can't just say, God, give us some wonderful tomatoes this year. 
And oh God, that yellow squash is so good. I just pray that you will cause it to cause it to grow. You've got to do your part. And so you must plant the seed. You must weed and water the garden. And then what will God do? He will faithfully cause those seeds to germinate. And he will provide the sun and ultimately cause those those plants to grow and produce through the marvelous process of photosynthesis. All of those wonderful things that we love to eat. Well, friends, the same thing is true with Christianity. You see, passive Christians never produce fruit like that. They will allow the weeds of of spiritual apathy to eventually choke them out. So God must prune that individual very often through suffering to cause them to grow and to bear fruit. So many people today are so consumed with the world. They become whatever television tells them they've got to become. And they do all of these things to somehow fit in with the world with no thought of what it means to get serious about their process of sanctification. And we need to understand, it's what Paul said in Philippians 2. Remember that passage beginning in verse 12? He says that we are to work out our salvation with what? With fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. By the way, in that passage, if I can digress for a moment, the concept of working out means to continually work to bring something to fulfillment. To continually work to bring something to completion. May I ask you, is that characteristic of your life? Are you constantly working out your salvation? Are you constantly doing all that you can do to become more conformed to the image of Christ? And that verse again tells us to do it in fear and trembling. In other words, that we need to have an an attitude of legitimate fear of offending a holy God. Combined with a heart that is filled with awe and respect for who he is. Well, the primary means of spiritual growth is certainly going to be the habitual study of the word of God so that the spirit of God can bring conviction to our hearts. And certainly that was obvious in Peter's life. But I want you to discover with me three things very briefly this morning that we see in Peter's life that helped him become what the Lord wanted him to become. The first thing we see is that he followed Christ. You think, well, boy, that's pretty simplistic. No, not if you really understand it, folks. He followed Christ in Matthew 4:19. You remember Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. He sees Peter and, and, and Andrew casting a net into the Sea of Galilee. And, and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And the text goes on to say that they immediately left their nets and followed him. In fact, Luke's gospel in chapter 5 and verse 11 says they forsook all and followed him. Folks, many people in our Christian culture follow Christian culture. They follow tradition, not Christ. They show up for church. They're a fair weather Christian. I mean, after all, that's what you do on Sunday in the South. But when the battle for the souls of men gets hot, they're nowhere to be found. When the saints come together as warriors of the faith and and drop to their knees and cry out for victory in their own lives and cry out for protection and cry out for the souls of those that they love. These folks are somewhere else attending to personal pleasures. You see, folks, that is a far cry from following Christ. 
which means you go where he goes. You learn to love what he loves and you hate what he hates. And you become his faithful and trusted companion. You see, for Peter, he knew that his number one priority had to become had to be to become a faithful disciple, a learner of Christ, not a casual observer. Peter understood that he couldn't be a spectator. He, he had to get in the game, if, you, if I can put it that way. What we see with Peter is that he constantly positioned himself in the very middle of kingdom activity. You see, he wanted to be near the master. Wherever there was a battle, he wanted to be on the front line. That's why he was a leader. You see, this is what makes a good leader, because you can't lead troops into the battle from the rear. You've got to stand in the front. Godly leaders are going to remain in the fray. A godly leader is going to be the last one standing when the dust and the smoke of a battle clears. A godly leader has got to be a rock. And that's what Peter was. And one of the reasons he became that rock is because he followed Christ. You see, for Peter, everything else in life had to be submissive to his commitment to follow Christ. His career, his own personal pleasure, his, his personal dreams and aspirations. He understood the cost of discipleship. That perhaps following Christ might even take him to a cross. Which in fact it did. Do you follow Christ? May I ask you that? Or do you do what most people do and play churchianity? A second thing that we see, not only did Peter follow Christ, but he did something else that the Lord used to faithfully conform him into the man that he became. Secondly, he was inquisitive. He was inquisitive. If you read the life of Peter, you'll find that he was always asking questions. Now, usually they were self-centered. Usually they were immature. And usually he got answers he didn't want to hear. But he was always learning. Folks, you will never, and I, re I really hope you understand this, you will never be truly useful unless you remain at the feet of the Savior and you long to learn. Ask the questions of your own heart. Ask the questions of what's going on in those around you. Ask all of those questions that the Word of God will cause you to ask as you immerse yourself in it. And you will grow. You know, the number one priority in the Christian life, as you've heard me say today or, or times before, has to be, according to Jesus, the idea of sitting at the feet of Jesus and Submitting yourself to learning and to hearing divine revelation. Remember in Luke 10, verse 41, remember Jesus is talking to Martha. And in that text, he goes, he, actually, he's talking to a variety of people. And Mary is there listening. And Martha is all frustrated because she's wanting to do other things that she thinks is more important. And she's going around in a dither. And finally, the, 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 the Lord says, Martha, Martha. You, you are worried about so many things, but only a few things are necessary, really only one. Now, folks, when I hear something like that, when I hear the Lord saying something like that, I'm going to be inquisitive. I'm going to say, oh, Lord, I want to know what this number one thing is. What is it? He says, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. Well, what's the good part? Well, as you look at the text, it is 
And here's the number one priority. Listening with an open heart and mind to the words of Jesus. You see, Peter longed for divine revelation. He wanted to know more. He had an insatiable appetite for truth. And folks, he never assumed he knew it all. You know, that's easy to do. I've been in church for 47 years. There's nothing you can tell me that I don't already know. Oh, I would love to have 30 seconds with you. Matter of fact, five seconds with you. Folks, I find that though by God's grace I'm allowed to spend 15, 20 hours a week in the Word of God, I, I always come away with a frustration that I know so little. There's so much more we need to know. Well, Peter understood this. That's why he could write later on in 1 Peter 2, 2, that we should be like newborn babes, literally newborn infants, who long for the pure milk of the word, that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. You see, folks, the principle there is that we should be like an infant that's newly born. And mother's milk is a matter of life and death. We've got to have it. In fact, Peter's last words in his second epistle, 2 Peter 3.18, he said, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. Well, he followed Christ. He was inquisitive. And thirdly, he persevered. He persevered despite all of his failures, despite all of the loving rebukes, despite the relentless criticisms. And personal attacks on on him as a preacher. He never gave up. Folks, do you also realize that in John 21, Jesus promised him that someday he would die on a cross? Can you imagine that? What if you heard that? And then what if you for 40 years, like Peter, continued to faithfully minister? Knowing that someday that would be your earthly reward. This man persevered. That's why he would later write in 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 13 and 14. To the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And later on in verse 16, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in the name, but in that name, let him glorify God. And then in verse 19, he says, therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. One of the early church fathers, a man by the name of Eusebius wrote a document called Ecclesiastical History. And in that particular document, we read that Peter indeed was crucified at the end of his life, just as the Lord had promised. However, we also read that before he was crucified, he had to watch his wife be crucified. And it is said that he stood and watched her and Constantly repeated the phrase, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Until she passed into his presence. 
And then it was his turn. And it is said that he required them to crucify him upside down because he was not worthy to die like the Savior. Folks, the only way a man could ever become a Simon or become a Peter after being a Simon is because he was willing to follow Christ regardless. And he was willing to learn all that he could about God and his glory. And he was therefore willing to persevere by the power of the Spirit of God. What a marvelous testimony of the transforming power of the Spirit when a man follows Christ and inquires to know more and perseveres. So I hope that gives great comfort to all of you Simons out there, all of you within the sound of my voice. God can and will use anyone who submits to him completely. Let me give you one other briefly here this morning, because there's not a lot to be said about him, but he's the second one on the list. Andrew, his brother. Andrew is very different than Peter. John's gospel reports in John 1, 37 through 42, that Andrew was, first of all, a disciple of John the Baptist. And then Jesus appears. And at that time, John the Baptist, you remember, says, behold, the Lamb of God. And at that point, Andrew left John the Baptist and began following Jesus. And one of the first things that Andrew did is he went to his brother, Peter, and said, Peter, I have found the Messiah And we read in the Gospels that he introduces the Lord to his brother and his brother to the Lord. And I might add that his fearless enthusiasm to introduce Jesus to other others became characteristic of his life as an apostle. Andrew's name means manly. He was a fisherman again from Bethsaida. He was a godly Jew that was looking for his Messiah, but you know, there was, there's very little said in the Bible about Andrew. We can surmise from all of that that he was never as intimate with the Lord as Peter, James, and John. In fact, he's usually referred to as simply Peter's brother. We never see him in a public role. We only see him in a quiet, faithful, humble, kind of behind-the-scenes kind of a guy. We never read about him complaining about his position or his role. We never see him trying to run under the spotlight and get everybody to applaud him. There's no indication in the word of God that he wanted to make a name for himself. In fact, Andrew is not even mentioned in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke. Except in the lists of the twelve disciples. That's the only way he's mentioned. Only in John's gospel do we have any information at all about him. If I can put it this way, Andrew is the type of servant that every pastor longs to have. He is to the church what bedrock is to a foundation. You cannot build a superstructure without it, but you'll never know it's there. I have learned... Over the years, that one of the most devastating forces in a church is that of ambitious men or women who have been put in some capacity of leadership that seek a more prominent position of influence. I have learned that very often people can cleverly conceal themselves in a cloak of humility, but in reality, their consuming passion 
is to be affirmed and to be promoted to a higher position. And very often their ravenous appetite for power and prestige will consume anyone that dares to challenge their agenda. They will become spiritual bullies, not gentle shepherds. And they will drive the sheep. They will not lead them. And as a result, they will have a tendency to scatter the sheep in every direction and then condemn the sheep for not submitting to their perceived authority. Well, Andrew was the opposite of such a man. Beloved, you show me a man who is satisfied to serve in obscurity. And I will show you a man or a woman whom God will use to change the world. Andrew, by the way, was the patron saint of Scotland. I should say he is the patron saint of Scotland. And one Scotsman by the name of Daniel McLean wrote this about Andrew, and I quote, Gathering together the traces of character found in Scripture about Andrew, we find neither the writer of an epistle nor the founder of a church, nor a leading figure in the apostolic age, but simply an intimate disciple of Jesus Christ, never anxious that others should know the spring of spiritual joy and share the blessing he so highly prized, a man of very moderate endowment who scarcely redeemed his early promise, simply simple-minded and sympathetic, without either dramatic power or heroic spirit, yet with that clinging confidence in Christ that brought him into the inner circle of the twelve. And I like this. He says, a man of deep religious feeling with little power of expression, magnetic more than electric. Better suited for the quiet walks of life than the stirring thoroughfares Andrew is the apostle of the private life, the disciple of the hearth, end quote. That imagery grabs me, sitting at the hearth, sitting around the fire on a cold winter night with a cup of hot chocolate, talking with a person that deeply knows and loves the Savior. My, what a joy that has been in my life. And I praise God, frankly, for the Andrews in my life. Those dear saints that no one has ever recognized in any special way. Those Sunday school teachers, I can still see their faces. Those youth leaders, Bible teachers, pastors down through the years. All those lay people that demonstrated the reality of who Christ was. My, the ways that God used them in my life. Can't you identify with that? And you know, this church is full of those kinds of dear saints, and I rejoice in that. I think of godly grandparents that loved the Lord and that demonstrated that to me even as a little guy. And of course, my parents and my dear wife. All of those that God has used to conform me into the image of Christ. Folks, never underestimate the power of an Andrew. But my, what a contrast, Peter and Andrew, right? What a contrast. Yet what a team. A team that would change the world. 
John MacArthur writes, and I quote, when you take a fresh look at the disciples, you'll be faced with a stunning fact. The men the Savior chose were ordinary, hopelessly human, remarkably unremarkable. But they were available and obedient to the master's call. And under Jesus teaching and touch, they became a force that forever changed the world. End quote. Friends, I hope this gives each of us a confident hope that no matter who we are or what we are, God can use us mightily when we decisively commit to submit to Him in our life. And I pray that that will be the passion of your heart from this day forward. Well, there's the first two. We'll look at the rest beginning next week. And by the way, as we go down the list, you get less and less information in the Word. But there are some wonderful things that we can glean as we look at what God has given us in His infallible record. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the joy of knowing You and serving You. Lord, thank You that You take us with all of our flaws and that You shape us into men and women that can be used for Your glory. Lord, we give You all of the credit. And finally this morning, Lord, I would just lift up those people that might be within the sound of my voice that know You not as Savior. God, overwhelm them with such conviction that it becomes the absolute priority in their life to flee from the wrath of God and to run into Your grace and Your glorious presence. And I pray that today even would be the day of their salvation. That today they would experience the miracle of the new birth. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cvctn.org or call 615-746-0113.